Critics are calling Kelly the noisiest musical of the season and a monumental bore. Norman Nadel of the World Telegram and Sun says somehow almost everything about the show seems to have turned out wrong. Howard Taubman of the New York Times says Kelly is without freshness or imagination, wooden and hollow. NBC says the show is a musical by committee and Elliot Norton of the Record American calls it a rattling cover for emptiness. You don't want to miss Kelly appearing now on Flop of the Heap. Flop of the Heap's mission is not to bash, rip, pan, grill, or flambe the Broadway productions we explore. Nor are we here to put performers and other artists down. We are merely here to revisit, and perhaps breathe new life into, Broadway musicals which would otherwise be lost to the ages. Finding enjoyment in the goofy. The absurd. The triumphs and foibles that come with making professional theater and art in general. We recognize the performers, technicians, directors, choreographers, producers, writers, and staff poured their life and soul into these shows. And that no single individual is responsible for the fate of a flop. More importantly, we also recognize that part of the creative process is failure, and believe facing those failures with a critical but genial attitude should be the norm. There could be no success without failure. After all, you can't spell hopeful without flop. Um, alright, hopefully our, um, connection will stay solid here. We can't see each other, and I can't see your beautiful face, but... Oh, thanks. We'll make it! Alright, I'm gonna hit record. Good, I have a surprise. A surprise? Oh, it's so beautiful to behold. Uh, I, Mark received his Celebrities or Food 2021 uh, <laughs> commemorative wall calendar. I got two. He did. He he bought two. Now, it's it's better if you buy more than one, folks, because the discount is deep. Yep. One for me and one for my weird eclectic friends. That's That's like our whole audience. Yeah. <laughs> Do you define as weird? Do people describe you as eclectic-minded? <laughs> the flop of the heap might be the podcast for you but certainly this calendar but definitely this calendar yeah buy a calendar i i have like 98 of them left okay give me something to say in the um celebrities or food commercial like give me give me a line that you say in the commercial i want to see if i can do the john voice oh um makes a makes a great gift order before it's, it's too late it's <laughs> gonna be so bad Makes a great gift. Order before it's too late. (laughs) (laughs) I like that was a noble attempt. I like it. The Flop of the Heap podcast is brought to you by Celebs or Food at Instagram. The only Instagram account where celebrities are, in fact, food. Now offering 2021 Celebrities or Food calendars, including all your favorites like Rhubarbra Streisand, Okra Winfrey, Sardina Menzel, and Patty Lumarscapone. Celebs underscore R underscore food at Instagram for more info. Remember, Flop of the Heap wants to hear about your Flop of the Week. You can have it read right here on the show. You can email us at show at flopoftheheappodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter or on our OnlyFans account where we do the podcast completely naked. It's still audio only. But we promise, we're completely in the raw. And now, to Kelly on Flop of the Heat. Mark, are you excited to talk about Kelly? Oh, is that what we're doing? Yeah. Uh, so let's do our, um, uh, what was I calling this segment? I could have looked that up on Wikipedia. We'll call it, I could have danced all night. I could have Googled all night. I could have Googled all night. That's perfect. That's what this section is now called. You were here, folks, at the birth of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, you have decided that this week we are doing... Kelly, the most notorious Broadway flop of all time. Yep. We I we may have bit off more than we can chew because there's a lot to break. There's a lot to unpack here. Yes, this is going to be a long one, or we're just going to cut down a lot of stuff, and it's going to 
be inconceivable as to what the f- we're talking about, but... We'll speed up the speed of our speech. Yes. What date did it open? It opened February 6th, 1965. What date did it close? February 6th, 1965. Well, John, that sounds like the same date. <laughs> one performance. They only had one performance. They they opened on a Saturday, so the reviews didn't come out till Monday morning. Once the reviews came out, the closing notice was posted. Yes. Yeah. So one one performance, five previews in New York City at the Broadhurst. Music by who, Mark? Moose Charlap. Moose Charlap. Every time. The name. Real name Morris went by Mark. Moose Charlap, best known for yeah. writing a couple of the songs in the score of Peter Pan, which was mostly re-ghostwritten by Carolyn Lee. Uh, well, no, no, no. He was writing with Carolyn Lee. It was ghostwritten by Julie Stein and Comden and Green. Precisely. But he was the original writer. They had to call them in to save the show from Moose Charlap. Am I going to get a call from the Charlap estate? I don't this? know. I mean, I, I yeah, it could be. Could be. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Book and lyrics by Eddie Lawrence. Eddie Lawrence uh, was in the cast of Bells Are Ringing and was known as an actor. Am I correct? He'd been in the original Mark Blitzstein Three Penny Opera. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, he played Crook Finger Jack in Mark Blitzstein's Three Penny Opera, which explains, we'll get to Brecht a little later, why he was so obsessed. Did you know he was in the original production of Sherry? I did not know that. Sherry is definitely on the list. Oh, it's not on the list. We have to put it on there. So, John, tell me, how much money did Kelly lose? How much did it lose? Uh, I believe it's $650,000, the entire investment. Which I have done, uh, use the inflation calculator, that's almost five and a half million dollars in today money. Wow, that's a lot of money to blow on a Broadway show. Yeah, it's a lot of money to blow. Um, so <laughs> when we first discussed doing Kelly, I was not too excited about it, just because I had not heard all the stories that we found about it. I mean, all I knew of Kelly before this was um, what I do on my tour, which is basically... Oh, you talk about it? Oh, yeah, because we go to the Broadhurst, I'm like... Uh, this is the Broadhurst Theater, home of Broadway's biggest flop, Kelly, uh, a musical that closed on opening night. I'm going to tell you the story of Kelly, and you are instantly going to realize why it was such a flop. <laughs> Kelly tells the story of a daredevil, apparently the true story, of a daredevil who wanted to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge and, and survive. And then he jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and he survived, and that's the whole story. <laughs> Questions? <laughs> nope, that's about it. Um, do you know off the top of your head what other shows, what other big notable shows ran at the Broadhurst? Um, recently? Not necessarily recently, just do you know of anything else the Broadhurst is known for housing other than Kelly's one night stand? <laughs> so, the other thing I talk about about the Broadhurst is it's been home to two captains of the USS Enterprise. Sir Patrick Stewart did a one-man version of A Christmas Carol there. And hmm. um, William Shatner did a play called The World of Susie Wong. And I always mention, you might know William Shatner from his, let's call it, unique acting style. You never know when the next word is going to come out of his mouth. Sure. Scotty. That's not always the way that William Shatner performed. You know what I mean? He used to perform normally. He was in the world of Susie Wong, and the reviews were terrible. And one night, he decided, what the hell? I'm just going to go out there and deliver all of my lines like a madman. <laughs> and they loved it, and he has acted that way ever since. <laughs> Is that for real? Yeah. Some people had to go to acting school. Oh my god, he just figured out a gimmick. That he did. Kelly, 1965. What's running on Broadway in 1965? Uh, Funny Girl is still running. Fiddler is still running. Dolly is still running. How to Succeed is still running. This was the year of Fiddler on the Roof. This is the year that Fiddler won the Tony Awards. Yes. Yeah, right. I mean, there was big money to be had in Broadway, and this is where the producers of Kelly thought they were going to do the exact opposite of what ended up happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so closed on opening night. Why? There are three characters you need to know about. Oh, oh, well, first of all, the director was Herbert Ross. He's also a character in this. Uh, Ross, I think, knows that he's 
putting together a piece of garbage and he doesn't know what to do with it. So mm-hmm. he's just doing, he's doing his level best. Yes. But it, it means that the director Herbert Ross is more in the, on the team of the producers than he is on the team of the writers. Mm-hmm. Um, the producers are David Susskind and, and Daniel Melnick. Uh, Susskind and Melnick came in as a producing team. They were the uh, first producers on board after <laughs> the three first failed attempts. Do you know about that? Uh, there were three failed attempts at this very show? No, 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 no. At landing a producer. Oh. Three well-known New York producers, including the producers of Bye Bye Birdie and The Music Man, mm-hmm. were uh, like, oh, great, yeah, we'll we'll back your show. You know, t- tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> Let us see a reading. Well, they, they make the same changes, and the writers said no. Three different times. Hmm. They were, like, the producer and these two creatives butted heads and ended their relationship until David Suskind, Daniel Melnick, and Joseph Levine come along. Suskind had produced three plays on Broadway, but was mostly TV and film guy. Only one of his Broadway shows lasted even more than five performances, and he'd never done a musical before this. That's, um, I mean, the composer is, no, rather the lyricist as well had never written a musical, so we're off to a good start. Melnick is sort of his right-hand man. Uh, The two of them invite Joe Levine to join the producing team. Levine is also a TV film producer and, like, was an importer of foreign films like Godzilla, stuff like like monster movies. (laughs) But then he he became legit because he also produced Catherine Hepburn in Long Day's Journey Into Night, which was, like, a critical and, you know, artistic success. This was a bump in the road. I did get the impression in reading about it that Joe Levine was less involved in the day-to-day, and Suskind and Melnick were, like, sitting in the seats behind the director at all times in rehearsals, like, putting their opinion out there, giving notes, making suggestions, which I don't think the director minded because I don't think he thought the piece was very strong. So there we've we've set up uh, in the cast. The original cast is a guy named Don Franks, who's the lead character. What do you know about him? First of all, I do know he was not the first choice. Correct. I don't imagine he was, but I didn't read anything about that. They had two original choices: Frank Gorshin, who was the Riddler in the old Adam West Batman series. What? He was choice number one. Choice number two. <laughs> So it could have been worse. <laughs> Get this. Choice number two was Richard Harris. Oh, I did read that. Yeah. King Arthur and Camelot, Dumbledore in the first two Harry Potter movies, and of course, most importantly, the voice behind the international pop sensation, MacArthur's Park. Don Franks was also, uh, he's Canadian. He was mostly like a nightclub performer, I think. He was like a man's man, though. He, he like, worked on a ship in South Africa. He, he was, like, a motorcycle rider. He worked on a foundry. Like, he was, like, not your typical, you know, actor. Apparently, he came to rehearsals dressed in suits that he designed himself. Beautiful. Uh, were they gorgeous? Do we have any pictures? Find any pictures? I don't have. I don't have any idea. I imagine they were flawless. Okay. He also spent his time off stage writing poetry and doodling flowers. <laughs> into a notebook he carried with him at all times, and apparently he was, like, aloof from the cast. Interesting. Interesting. Which sets everything up in an awkward light to to begin with, you know. It's my opinion that if you cast someone in a lead, they have to be a driving force for the entire experience, you know. Not this guy. Not this guy, no. John, what what did he go on to do after this? I honestly have no idea. I can't find anything few other actors in the show. So Eileen Rogers um, was in the role of this sort of dance hall queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in Fiorello. She was in Tenderloin. She was uh, she played Reno Sweeney in the 1962 Anything Goes, which is my favorite cast recording of Anything Goes. Okay. Um, and then Ella Logan was in the cast, who played the mother, mm-hmm. who played Hop Kelly's mother. Mm-hmm. So here's what I don't know in learning about what went wrong on the road i don't know who the hell what's his name steve brody is or what his story is Uh, well have i got a tale to tell you this is 1880s new york post civil war pre turn of the century steve brody is real life bridge jumper hop kelly is the musical character based on steve brody correct so 
Brooklyn Bridge. It's finished in 1983. <laughs> no, that's not right. 1883. Thanks, John. <laughs> 1883. First bridge ever over the East River. Largest suspension bridge in the world at the time. It's, it's beautiful. If you've ever been to New York, it connects Lower Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn. Don't bother walking across it if you're a tourist, in my opinion. It's crowded. It's busy. No, if you're a tourist and you come to New York, walk over the Manhattan Bridge. It's one bridge north of the Brooklyn Bridge, and you can see the Brooklyn Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, the New York skyline, and everything you want to take a mm -hmm. picture of on the Manhattan Bridge. And no one walks across it, and you'll have the whole place yep. to yourself. That's what real tourists should do when they come to New York. Do not walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. People have to get to work. <laughs> Bicycles are traveling at hundreds of miles an hour. We, we don't need you wandering in circles. Exactly. And Thank you. <laughs> please, please do not go to the Brooklyn Bridge. So 1885, Robert mm -hmm. Emmett Odlum. Okay, he's a swimming professor and a lifeguard. He makes headlines by being the first man to jump from the Brooklyn Bridge. And believe it or not, this guy's all about safety. He wants to demonstrate that people do not simply die from falling through the air. Because he wants people to realize that if they are in a burning building, their best chance of survival... Is to jump. Is to jump into an awaiting net. Huh. Interesting. That's really kind of like a... Public service announcement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a charitable... The more you know. Yeah, sure. Here's the issue, John. He wasn't jumping into a net. He was jumping into water. Right, but he was also a professional diver, you said. He or was professional a swimmer. swimming professor. He's okay, so he had a better chance than most people. Swimming professor, swimming uh, teacher. Did I really write professor? He's a professor of swimming. Um, <laughs> a doctor of swim. <laughs> uh, well, water has surface tension. He dies of a ruptured spleen, a ruptured liver, <gasps> and ruptured kidneys about 45 minutes after the jump. Holy shit. Yeah. Whoa, that's gruesome. Yeah, it's not Damn. not great. Uh, a year later, Steve Brody decides he's going to jump off of the bridge on a $200 bet. Steve Brody, 24-year-old newsboy, uh, decides $200 is worth risking my life. So he claims to have practiced jumping from ship masts, uh, and eventually he makes the jump. He survives, claims he jumped from a horse-drawn carriage that he hitched a ride on, jumped down below. His friends were waiting in a rowboat to collect him. Mm -hmm. Steve Brody is arrested for attempted suicide. Really? Yep. Huh. By the point of the court date, he already had made some sort of <laughs> splash. Um, he is sort of becoming a little bit of a legend already. Okay. He shows up to the court with a small posse. He's 45 minutes late. He kind of waves off all the criticism about being tardy. Uh, and he says, I didn't keep the judge waiting too long, did I? Real, real cojones on this oh, guy. Oh, like cocky mofo. Yep. Judge immediately adjusts the charges. No longer is it attempted suicide. He's going to charge Brody for being a pedestrian on a bridge that is reserved only for vehicles. And for evading bridge police whose job it is to prohibit foot traffic oh okay brody's lawyers the cojones on these guys brody's lawyers successfully argue that because brody's feet never touched the bridge he could not be considered a pedestrian and therefore had broken no laws he jumped straight from the carriage and into the water oh wow <laughs> i mean clever good lawyers good lawyers um, what happened so he gets away with it but that's not enough for him. He's already becoming sort of this urban legend in New York. So he keeps jumping off of more bridges. So I have this article, 1887, May 2nd, 1887, Cincinnati. Right. And remember, folks, this is before cable. So, you know, like an, an article about someone doing something amazing in, in the newspaper is about as far as you can go. Correct. The article is entitled, Of Course Brody Escaped. The article reads, This morning... An unknown man jumped off the suspension bridge with suicidal intent and was drowned. This afternoon, Steve Brody, who was jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, made the jump from the suspension bridge and was picked up by a y'all comparatively uninjured. So this article is kind of like, that guy died. Kind of wish Brody had died. 
<laughs> like, why? Where is the story? Where is the musical in this? I know. Who cares? I, I agree with you. But he's kind of a character. Well, that's the thing. But he's not a character you can root for. I guess that's correct. If he's a douchebag, like you... It gets so much worse, though. Could you imagine? Are you ready for what happens next? Not may Probably not. So, his most notable run-in with the law, he's arrested for abducting a 16-year-old girl named Gertrude Lord. Um. She was enamored with him. She was committed to the Charitable Institution for the Reformation of Young Females. Some very... You know, hands made tail shit going on there. Okay. He abducted her? Freed her. Abduct. She wanted to go with him, okay, but he had no okay. right to do so. Yes. He goes, gets hauled into court. The judge agrees to let them marry, but warns that if he wants custody of her, he has to marry her basically immediately. He doesn't want him to cut and run or. I see. Bang, bang and run. Yes. Uh, so the entire party exits the court. Yelling, screaming, they're drinking in the street, walking down the street, find the nearest church, find the reverend there. The reverend sits in the middle of the party for ten minutes with his head in his hands and eventually picks up his head and goes, I don't think I should do this. Don't worry, though. The nearby Lutheran, German Lutheran reverend, was happy to (laughs) marry them, gave them his blessing. What? That's madness. Yep. Wow. Uh, So Brody uses his fame... To purchase a bar in the Bowery. It's at the corner of Bowery and Grand Street. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Was it called Brody's? I think so. Okay. Or something along those lines. And the whole thing is sort of a museum to Brody. There's an (laughs) oil painting of him over the bar. There's an affidavit from the captain who pulled him out of the water. In the back is a dime museum mostly devoted to to Brody. He even goes on to play in two vaudeville musicals. I mean, this is fame in the 1880s. It's really kind of beyond our comprehension, but he is uh, he's the Beyonce of his day. Yes, in many ways. <laughs> um, I won't name them. Uh, and obviously he also had a huge ego. Th- that's one thing in listening to some of the songs and a little, there's not a lot, but little bits of dialogue. It's like, He's always just impatient and uninterested in others. And so it's like, oh, okay, I get what character they're building. But it never changes. You don't ever... He's never not that character. So by the end of the play, it's like, we haven't gone anywhere. We sat here for two hours. We haven't gone anywhere. Well, that's the complaint I think they made in the New York Times. He's just like a... I don't remember. They called him like a jughead or a meathead or something like that. An oaf or something. It's just, why do we... Why are we rooting for this type of man? <laughs> it's a brush thing, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But hold on, I still got more, yeah. I got more on Stevie Boy. Okay, yeah, yeah, go on. So he becomes so famous that other people start making similar jumps. This guy named Larry Donovan, he jumps off the Brooklyn Bridge about a month after Brody does in front of a thousand witnesses. He becomes obsessed with Brody, starts just trying to outmatch him. He jumps off the Niagara Falls uh, suspension mm-hmm. bridge. Brody does the same uh, a little bit later. And spurred by his competition with Brody, he eventually goes to England. He's trying to jump off of a number of bridges there. He walks into a bar one night. He's uh, drunkenly uh, bragging to everyone. I jumped off of this bridge and this bridge and this bridge. <laughs> and they go, okay, buddy, I'll pay you four pounds to jump off of the Hungerford Bridge. No problem. This bridge is way shorter than any bridge he's ever jumped off before. Okay. Well, he drowns and he, his body gets swept away by the Thames. Holy crap. Upon learning of his death, his sister's response is, Oh, I told him bridge jumping is no way to make a living. Oh, I told the boy. <laughs> I told him every day. <laughs> so this poor schmuck dies because he is obsessed with Brody. Here's... The kicker, John. Are you ready? Okay. Brody likely never jumped off of any of these bridges. Oh. He never announced where or when he was going to make the jump. And in 1930, a retired policeman and friend of Brody's claims that Brody told him that he never made any jumps. (laughs) He instead... And this is where the, the... 
the element in the musical comes in. He instead had a dummy dropped off of the bridge by his buddies, and he would swim from the nearby shore and reemerge near wherever the dummy fell. Wow, that's a lot of effort in 1885. But you can get away with it, right? There's no video to prove otherwise. Well... That makes him a con man then. Oh, yeah. I think about the other types of things that were happening during this time period. You know, during this time period and even into the, you know, for decades after the turn of the century, going to a a medium, a palm reader, a tarot reader, uh, you know, some sort of doing seances was popular. And people sitting sitting on flagpoles for weeks at a, at a oh, time yeah. and peeing <laughs> down little rubber tubes. Like, what... In order to just make a name for themselves, to make money, to, you mm-hmm. know, break records, this type of thing was happening a lot, you know? Yep, just to make the whole thing not, just to make it anticlimactic, doesn't die bridge jumping. He develops tuberculosis, he travels to San Antonio for the dry, warm mm-hmm. air, he dies in San Antonio, he's buried in Queens, and that is the story Steve Brody. Okay, so my first instinct, Mark, is to not write a musical about this, man. That's my first instinct. You have good instincts. But you know, I love the time period. You know what else is weird is that Hello, Dolly was running still, 1890s New York-based musical. Funny Girl was Mm -hmm. running still, 1890s New York-based musical. Like, why do we need Kelly? I 100% agree with you on that. There's no room for Kelly, even if it were good. And now, this. And now, Flop of the Heat brings you a new and dramatic installment of Dolls of Our Lives. Ma. Da. Oh, yes, Stevie. What is it, me darling boy? I, uh, I... Oh, go on, son. Spit it out. I've got to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. Gonna jump off the Brooklyn Bridge so someday someone will write a musical about me. Oh, holy Mary, Father of God. But Stevie, you're a newsboy. Your da was a newsboy. Your granda was a newsboy. You were born for this life. Newsboydom has given you so much. Nada. It's given me nada. Or maybe one day they'll even write a musical about newsboys. Call it, uh, uh... Newsers. I can't wait that long. I'm jumping. Broadway, here I come. installment of Dolls of Our Lives. And now, back to Flop of the Heat. Okay, so we want to move on to what? What made the show such a disaster? Well, I think it's important to let people know that the reason we know so much about why this particular show was a disaster is because in the beginning of the whole process, the three producers thought it would be a good idea to invite a reporter from the Saturday Evening Post along on the road with the show to write a story ostensibly about the making of the next great American Broadway musical. Uh, He was invited to spend months with them from rehearsals in New York through the Philly tryout, Boston tryout, and the whole kit and caboodle. He saw every single minute of this disaster. And instead of a a how-to guide (laughs) of creating the next big boffo show in new york he wrote an expose on the disaster that happened and the legal nightmare that it all became where did he think things went wrong well he kind of just lays it out there he you don't the author um you don't hear his opinion on any of it really in the article he just is giving you a play-by-play you know and then in the end, mm-hmm. he chose, you know, what order to put it all in. There's a lot of information. Like, I don't know. Just you ask me questions, and I'll give you the sorted details in the best way that I can. Okay. 
Is there any specific drama that went on, or any quoted drama between cast or between producers and writers? So, you know, the description of the environment backstage, even fairly early in the whole process, seems to be not a good one. Mm -hmm. There's like an overwhelming umbrella feeling of bad juju. The whole thing begins with a publicity event that Suskind and Melnick and Levine did on the Brooklyn Bridge, like three months before rehearsals were even to begin, uh-huh. with actors in costume and props and musicians all ready to do an, uh, the title song. You know that one song in the show that does not give you an impression of what the show is? That's the song they do for their promo on the Brooklyn Bridge, much to the bewilderment of commuters to Flatbush. Uh-huh. And that's Everybody um, Here Loves Kelly, correct? Everybody Here Loves Kelly, which is this, like, east side, west side type of story that does not... It is not a rollicking good time, this show. Mm-hmm. It is a glimpse into empty nothingness. <laughs> So Charlap and Eddie Lawrence were attempting to write a Brechtian musical. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not extremely familiar with Brecht. I mean, I know Three Penny Opera a little, but other than that, I don't know much of his oeuvre. Yes. So t- tell yeah. me a little bit about Brecht and and where they were going with their concept for the yeah. show vis-a-vis Steve Brody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to pronounce his name correctly which is brecht brecht yeah brecht, brecht. Well, americans say brecht brecht uh but they're wrong brecht <laughs> is also a thing sure it doesn't matter well, can you play... do it fast because we don't have all uh, yeah, day yeah, yeah 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 yeah. I, I can do it fast i'll uh why don't you put 30 seconds on the clock <laughs> 30 a... seconds on the clock here we go Bertolt Brecht's work is political, often focusing on the human condition, centering on protagonists who are often prostitutes, thieves, murderers, and the destitute, and then comparing their virtue with the virtue of those who have power over them, the elites and the politicians. In Brecht's work, everyone is a whore! Brecht's style works to engage the theater consciously without the pretense of suspension of disbelief. Instead, bludgeoning the message home through referendum or the alienation effect, using audience-directed monologues, harsh lighting, vulgarity, or purposefully misrhyming words to keep the audience engaged on a conscious level. Did I do it? Yeah! Anyway, so tell me more about Brecht. Um, well, they were sort of on the right track in some ways. And when I revisit the cast album, everything begins to make more sense. Doesn't mean they were doing it right. But it yeah. begins to make but it, more sense. You get what they were going yes. for. All of these yeah. sort of this gaggle of low life characters. Um, nobody's particularly a hero. And also a lot of the material is presented directly to the audience, and that's the biggest thing with uh Breck. There's no there's no fourth wall, generally, or there's no suspension of disbelief. They're speaking to you. They're speaking to you because they kind of want to bludgeon you over the head with the information. They never want you to be like, oh, I'm in a play. Oh, I'm in the Bowery. That's not the point of Brecht. Mm-hmm. So uh, here, here's the main problem with the producers. The producers that they got to sit down at the table mm-hmm. and be like, this is what our idea is, decided to go the completely wrong direction with it. Either they didn't understand what the creators were going for or they... Hated it? I, I guess that's the, thought only, it was awful. It's the only explanation, is that they didn't understand it or they thought that they could change it enough to f- to make it marketable. Now, they were throwing a ton of money at it. The sets and the costumes were both designed by the same two guys that designed Dolly, mm-hmm. which doesn't make any sense. This is the opposite of a lavish Correct. production. It, it's a, it should be bare bones Correct. minimalist. And that's not, I mean, the sets were enormous and gorgeous and the costumes were, you know, cost $100,000. So it's quite a bit of money thrown at something where if you didn't understand what the whole, if you didn't believe in the project from the beginning, why did you invest in it? you know what that says to me is that 
it wasn't the style that they were into. They legitimately thought a musical about Steve Brody was a good idea. It had nothing to do with the Brecht stuff, obviously. So, so the Brechtianness was just like the overlay that they thought would make them look At least smarter. The, the composer and lyricist, yes. Um, I think the producers kind of ignored yeah, it. Yeah, I, I get that impression too. In stories, it seems like Moose Charlap was very precious about his material. Like, so the uh, obviously it takes place in the 1880s. So Steve Brody is a character, Hop Kelly, but there's also characters like Diamond Jim Brady, Frank and Jesse James, Tony Pastor, mm-hmm. Lillian Russell. All of these it's like exactly real, like, like you know, yep. like the ragtime historicals. This is the this is the Kelly historicals. So even there was a point where the producers were very. Mm-hmm strong about their opinion about cutting the James brothers because it was a lot of tangential stories that didn't bring it back together with the Kelly story. And Moose like couldn't even handle them talking about cutting a character song. Like it hurt him too much. He would get very upset. And I feel like, you know, people were hurting him physically, you know, touching his material. He is suffering from what I like to call Moriestin syndrome? Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Maury, don't sue me. Please. Dare we dare we speak ill of, of the brilliant Moriestin, but he he's had some struggles. He likes to throw a couple of uh unnecessary he's had, character well, songs. You got uh, see, there's this awful push and pull between producers and creators, and that you don't wanna have to make decisions that are to make something more marketable. You don't want to make a decision that's just for the money's sake. You want it to be your perfect version of yeah. the show. So there's always that push and pull between creatives and money people. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. According to the Dramatist Guild, both Charlap and Lawrence had the first right of approval. The producers had no legal ability to, make, to, change, to anything. change anything. But right. they did... Anyway, and where does that lead us? Yes. So it would lead to... Uh, let me let me go a little bit uh, timeline okay. here. Let me just talk a little bit about Philadelphia. They did some run-throughs of the show when they were pretty late in the rehearsal process in New York for family and friends. Now, as an actor, Mark, when you do your family and friends run-through, how are they typically as an audience? They're very supportive. They will cheer almost anything. They're They're typically... A generous audience. Yes. Dare I say, an over-generous audience sometimes. Their their friends and family preview was met with utter silence. <laughs> it was not a good sign. That's and this my is son up there, but that, well, I wish he wasn't. That's Eddie's clarionet. <laughs> They get to Philadelphia. This is a, a, a juicy tidbit that I thought was particularly gross. The the guy who wrote the article for Saturday Evening Post, I'm going to refer to him a lot. At Lapham, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say the Post guy wrote. When they arrived in Philly, the marquee looked like the marquee on a suburban supermarket. <laughs> the cold and efficient lettering advertised as if it were the day's special grocery offering, <laughs> a smash new musical comedy. Oh my god. <laughs> Bad things happen in Philadelphia. Bad things happen in Philadelphia. At the Philadelphia opening, the producers were leaning on a rail behind the last row. Charlap and Lawrence stood off to the side because they didn't spend time with the producers. And they they weren't getting along Mm -hmm. at all. And of all the people in the theater, it seemed as though Charlap and Lawrence were enjoying the show the most. One, One woman leaving the theater says to her friend as she's heading out of the lobby, I feel sorry for the cast. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. oh, the very idea and of hiring the reporter that got to hear that and write it down mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's also getting paid on this like money money losing scheme yeah, yeah, yeah. at a bar later that night at the philly opening one of the cast members said hey in philly they hated west side story if they liked us we'd be in trouble oh well that um <laughs> how do you feel about that a few months later so the huge problem that was in the criticisms in the Philly production originally was that Hop Kelly was not a likable character. Mm-hmm. Uh, one Philly reviewer described him as a one-dimensional oaf. But nobody could convince the writers to do anything about it. They People were trying. Mm-hmm. The producers were trying. The director was trying. Ella Logan, who was in the cast, was probably trying. So 
The producers make their first executive decision after it the opening is so bad in Philly, and they make a move, and to begin with, they cut the James brothers. Not a huge yeah. deal. You know, they weren't rewriting dialogue, they weren't eliminating, they did, they did eliminate a full song for the James brothers, but a song that you wouldn't know, yeah. it didn't advance the plot in any way. So this is a typical out-of-town yep. cut. You have to accept that cuts are going to be made. And it, you may not be the one making those decisions. So the the producers also want hero, like a hero story out of Hop Kelly, which is terrible because he's the anti-hero of the whole... Well, Brecht again. Very Brecht. Um, they wanted to cut the opening, Ode to a Bridge. What a shame. What a shame that would have been that number. We're going to talk about that number, right? This one, yeah, we can. Okay, so let's talk about it just for a second, and then I want to tell you what the discussion was and possibly Let me describe to everybody just the format of the song. The format of every verse is Kelly kind of gives the bridge some kind of descriptor and then describes two places that the bridge connects. It starts the first one, Oh, you great big bridge. That's how the show starts. Oh, you great big bridge. Fail. <laughs> I'm already bored. The next one is, Oh, you mammoth suspension. Which is a great grinder profile name. <laughs> uh, the next one is, Oh, you great big bastion. And then, it's almost comedic, and it had to be on purpose. The last one, because he's such an oaf, he runs out of descriptors and goes, oh, you great big bridge again. Yeah, it's not good. I almost fell out of bed the first time I heard it. The ending is what kills me the most. It's a hell of a job you do connecting Lindbrook with your or orc. New. No. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> Uh, what about this one? It's a hell of a job you do, you magnificent monster who don't say boo. I say boo. <laughs> so tell me what the argument was about Ode to the Bridge, why they want to cut it. <laughs> so Melnick says to Moose, it's no good, Eddie. It, talking about the opening number, it's no good, Eddie. It's got a damarung. Lawrence replies, of course, like a bad poem. <laughs> that's the whole point of the joke. See, that's what I'm telling you. They knew they were trying to make something purposefully bad funny. But you can't open a show like that. You don't know the style of the show yet. Yeah. So to you, who has not figured it out yet, it just seems bad. Suskin replies, he's like, this, the song, the whole point of the song is humorless. And Lawrence says, well, I think it's funny. All my friends think it's funny. And Suskin says, your friends are wrong, Eddie. Well, you'd think they would have laughed at the friends and family performance then, don't you? Not even then. <laughs> Nobody in the show knew what they were supposed to be doing, evidently. It's a rudderless ship. Yes. Next on the list, um, Herbert Ross, the director, decides to fire Ella Logan. Now, Ella Logan was the closest thing they had to a star in the show. Mm -hmm. She was in the original Finian's Rainbow, and she's, if you know that cast recording, she sings Glockamora. And she's we... That we will discuss Finian's Rainbow undoubtedly when we do our Flahooli episode. Oh, yeah. Well, so she played the Irish lead in Finian's Rainbow, and then she plays the Irish mother in this. And she's uh, the point is to sell tickets, and of course I'm sure she's still a powerhouse performer, but she's playing another Irish stereotype. You're like, I don't know. And, and so, so much of this sounds just dreadful. Mm -hmm. So Herbert Ross decides to fire Ella Logan. I, I, I got the impression that it was because they simply weren't getting along and he had the power to do so. She, he keeps saying she's a cantankerous old lady. She's so vulgar I can't stand it. She's hurting the show and she'll definitely have to go. Oh, Melnick called her a cancer and a Trotskyite. Oh, God. <laughs> do we believe them or do we think... That I, I just... don't know if I believe them or not. I have the feeling that... I mean, she knew when the show was not going well and I'm sure her attitude was matching that. Yeah. So even though Logan was the nearest thing they had to a star, uh, she must have been poisonous or else they wouldn't have decided to let her go, I don't think. Yeah. Um, the only problem is you have to pay an equity actor out of their contract if their role is eliminated. So they tried to reduce her role in order to get her to quit, and she didn't. Good for 
Ella Logan. Smart lady. Smart lady. There's a lot of stories of her, like, coming into the bar at the end of the night and just, like, <laughs> being the diva, ES diva. Um, at one point, Ella Logan says, there's something frightfully fishy going on. You can't trust anybody around here. With most plays, you never see the producers, but these guys do everything but come in rehearsal clothes. And that was a huge problem, is that the like the two producers, particularly Melnick and Suskin, were constantly there. Mm-hmm. Ella Logan referred to Melnick throughout the rest of rehearsal as the silent killer. Oh. So remember, they're, so they're like rehearsing new material and changes during the day. They're running the Philly opening at night, and they're getting ready to go to Boston. Ross eventually gets so fed up with the rewrites not really being rewrites. Like, mm-hmm. they keep... Everyone, they keep having sit-downs and powwows and discussions, but anytime there's a rewrite, it's like the same stuff. There's no changes from Eddie Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Ross gets so fed up with the rewrites that he <laughs> he has the actors do a rehearsal where they improvise their lines. Oh. It's that bad. Oh, no. And now, this. John, it's a cold and windy day here at the Brooklyn Bridge, where amateur podcast host Mark Alpert will attempt to reenact Steve Brody's famous bridge jump, whilst performing his interpretation of Kelly's profit margin all at the same time. Never has this dangerous feat been attempted by any podcast host before. A death-defying $650,000 plummet. Many onlookers have gathered to watch this historic jump. Oh, and there he goes! 650,000! Now is it 400,000? 300? 200? Looks like he's gonna make it, folks! 40, 30, 10, 0! Oh! And there he is, waving to the crowd! He's done it, folks! Mark Albert, the world's first podcast host to jump off a bridge with the intention of surviving. What a historic day! And now back to you at the desk. So... Eddie and Moose decide it's over. There's no way to fix the situation anymore. It's doomed. Lawrence and Charlap don't go to the company with the company to Boston. Instead, they have their lawyer send a telegram to the producers, which basically reads as a threat of legal action if uh, if any changes are continue to be made to the script and okay, score. Okay, so they've just gone full in on abandon the show, sue the producers. Correct, with the hope that it'll be quickly legally resolved, and then they'll just go back and open it on Broadway and the producers will be silenced or whatever. How'd that go? So that's not what happens. (laughs) That's not what happens. (laughs) So immediately when the, when the telegram is sent, um, Ella Logan's role is restored. Uh, I assume because they know this is going to be bad publicity, so they don't need double bad publicity. Mm -hmm. The producers tell Lawrence they're bringing on another writer to help. So in the meantime, they also have to raise more money to cover continued expenses, which is, Rehearsals for the new material, payment for the writer, the crew that has to be there for the new tech rehearsals, like everything that goes into it. So Moose says, it's not our show anymore. It's 10th rate television jazz. The lawyers file a demand for arbitration of the dispute. So then the the arbitration meeting happens. It's a total disaster. Uh, Moose leaves saying that he can't trust the men who the three men who are producing the show and they're, they're not human beings to him anymore oh, they're simply beasts dehumanizing. and they're the me- they're the men who will blow up the world that's how bad it is you just you know let them make their cuts to make the show more marketable you you win they win everybody yep. wins if you keep doing this you know it's just it's not going to uh, go well Bertolt Brecht is just screaming in this man's ear from the grave and he can't tune him out not at all january 18th the show moves to boston Moose and Eddie asked their lawyers to seek a court order that would enjoin the producers from even bringing the show to New York. The producers go to the Supreme Court of the state of New York and win a temporary stay for the arbitration. Like, no one has time for this, yeah. <laughs> you know? Changes are made in Boston. Uh, they bring in this comedy writer, David Goodman, to fix the script. Hop Kelly is changed from this weird, dark, anti-hero douchebag to a hero. Just a sentimental Irish kid trying to make a success of himself. Which is now also not the right move, because there's no way that this skeleton of a show is going to hold up that story. There's no way. And we could have worked. We could have, if we started there, if we started there, maybe something (laughs) could have been done. If you had started there. Yes. 12 months prior, but you didn't. There's no way to recover. It's doomed, folks, but yep. there's so much more to go. <laughs> so, whereas 
Moose and Eddie's show began with a crowd booing Kelly on the bridge. The play now began with a crowd cheering for Hop Kelly on the bridge and his father shouting the first line, Clear the way for Hop Kelly! Clear the way for the hero of the world! God! No! (laughs) All right, so... (laughs) The... After they made all of these, like... I mean... in the context of what has already been written, these sort of surface changes to the show, the audience response is only just slightly better. The reviews are worse than Philadelphia. We've gone from nothing to a golf clap. Well, the audience, I mean, there's going to be, oh, you hear that? There's like actual laughs now, but it doesn't mean the show is yeah. any good. So Levine calls for more jokes, more laughs all the time. At this point, Eileen Rogers sends a telegram to her agent in New York. Mm. Do you know what it says? Go on. Help! (laughs) And that's 17 E's. Do you know how expensive that postcard was? Literally 17 (laughs) E's. Um, The Boston reviews are just, like, totally awful. A cast member points out that, hey, they hated Oklahoma in Boston. If they liked it, then we'd be in trouble. Oh, (laughs) my God. So the same shit that they were saying in Philly with West Side Story. Yeah. So a nice nice snippet. They, the producers weren't telling the publicist in New York any information about what was happening behind the scenes. So the publicist in New York found out about the separation of the authors, like the same day the public did. And the Ella Logan fiasco, no one was telling him about the Ella Logan fiasco, so he was not privy to any of it. News of the artistic separation finally reaches New York, and so any hope of raising that money that they're spending every day to keep rehearsing this thing is gone. Nobody is going to be investing in the show. So Suskind and Melnick are like, hey, Levine, you're the money man. Can we have an extra 50 thou? No. And Levine goes on vacation to Jamaica. No! <laughs> yes! Oh my God. Levine leaves town. He's like, oh, no, no, oh no. You're God. not getting another oh cent out of me. Good luck, boys. And he leaves. He doesn't come back until opening night on Broadway. So Suskind and Melnick briefly consider closing in Boston. But here, Mark, they made perhaps the most fatal mistake. I can't imagine that this could get worse, but... Tell me. Well, they mistakenly think that their reputations will be kept intact if they actually do open in New York instead of being known as just another flop that closed on the road. Oh. Oh. Of course, we now know that if they had closed on the road, we wouldn't be talking about how stupid they are (laughs) right now. Uh, Only once we run out of Broadway flops could we possibly move on to off-Broadway and things that died on the road. So... Right. So, they decide to close early in Boston so that they can push the Broadway opening two weeks earlier. They want it earlier? Well, because they don't want to lose another $100,000 on two more weeks in Boston, they want to lose just the 50000 open it, and be done. Oh, God. More jokes, more laughs. They bring in two more writers to rewrite more of the script. Uh-huh. Guess who the writers are? I know it, and I, I'm so it, sad. Leonard Stern and Mel... Mel fucking. Brooks. Mel Brooks to doctor the script. Brooks is the one who convinces them to get rid of Ella Logan for real this time, saying that her role doesn't help the show. Oh. Also probably butting heads with her, oh, I they're imagine. Not friends. He also points out what the producers already knew, that there were too many extraneous characters singing extraneous songs. And Brooks says, The first three numbers in Act 2 are the worst! <laughs> 75 miles an hour into a stone wall! Death! Three losers back to back. And he's talking about Home Again, the New York List song, which Stern describes as pedantic horror. Just to make sure, that's what you think Mel Brooks sounded like in 1965. (laughs) 75 miles an hour into a stone wall. Death. (laughs) 75 miles an hour into a stone wall. (laughs) Logan's uh, two songs are removed from the show, Home Again and The Times That Linger. Removing now nine of Charlap's 17 songs. (laughs) Nine of 17? Somebody needs to get Julie Stein on the phone. So no new music Mm -hmm. is added, as far as I know. Brooks and Stern were asked to, get this, write two additional scenes and pepper the script with comedy routines. (laughs) The yuck yucks. We need some yuck yucks. So now they're throwing, like, borscht belt comedy dialogue into a show that's supposed to be a deep metaphor for life? Is this where we get 
the quoted line from the New York Times, you can't Welsh on an Englishman, why don't you English on a Welshman? This was one of the jokes that they shoehorned into the show after these rewrites. Okay, so now it's less than two weeks from Broadway, and Ross informs the cast that there's almost a complete rewrite, and that'll be available on January 25th. Remember, they open Broadway February, what was it, 6th? 6th. February 6th. So they'll have a week to rehearse this basically brand new show before the Broadway opening. It's summer stock. Here's some direct quotes from the Lapham article on the Post. Quote, Afternoon rehearsals took place in an atmosphere of profound discouragement. Two days after, Suskind, Melnick, and Ross go to the Dramatists Guild for arbitration with Lawrence and Charlap. Arbitration fails. (laughs) The authors want the show restored to the Philly version, so they go to the state Supreme Court the next morning. Ella Logan arrives as a spectator. Mm -hmm. She's been permanently fired now. Suskin's attorney reminds the judge that $500,000 was invested in the play and that even a genius must be practical, Your Honor. Oh. They kept referring to Musinetti as like, oh, they think they're Shakespeare. They think they're uh, Oscar Wilde over here. Can't adjust one of his lines. Oh, God. The lawyer for the writers says the producers want to take the play and do whatever they want with it and refers to the producers as interlopers and vandals. How does the judge take all this? The judge says he'll consider the matter and hand down a decision in a few days. So the cast is like waiting to be told they can go home, are now told, keep rehearsing. Which you know goes great (laughs) when you don't know whether or not you're going to open. Of course you're going to dive full head in. Just keep working a new show you think 90% chance is never going to open anywhere. So cast is rehearsing on a sinking ship. Um, Levine returns from his vacation and it's Opening night on Broadway. He's got a tan. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I pictured. He's got like the Hawaiian shirt on, the sunglasses. That's He's just completely so zen and happy and mellow. Painting the picture. Opening night on Broadway. It's very exciting, Mark. Lots of people in free seats down in the <laughs> orchestra. Eddie and Moose are in the balcony with a tape recorder and notepads and their lawyers and everything. Ella Logan decides to get some tickets in the orchestra with some friends. I love Ella Logan. Ella Logan, I love her too. I wish I could be a fly on the wall and li- listen to her rant and rave. In in one story, the writer is talking about how she, when she enters the bar, you know, the, the, the kids in the, in the chorus get to the bar first and yeah, they yeah, have yeah. a few. And she goes back to her boudoir and shows up fashionably late at like mm-hmm. two in the morning and whenever she came into the bar whichever bar it was whatever city she would have this conspiratorial look on her face <laughs> we all know <laughs> that person she would like scan the room for exactly who she needed to talk shit to and about at that moment and headed straight for them oh, God. we we all know that person i hey we're that person sometimes yeah. put, put enough in me mark <laughs> although the quote is uh, although the applause sounded loud and hearty in the orchestra where most of the people had the free seats the balcony remained ominously quiet Oof. so um moose charlap actually has the f-ing nerve to show up at sardi's for, for the opening night party oh they did go to sardi's and has a verbal argument with joe levine mm-hmm. in the restaurant so the reviews come out Monday. They opened on a Saturday. There was no Sunday matinee for whatever reason, and they op- the, the the reviews come out Monday morning, and they are they are described as ruinous. <laughs> the producers decide Monday to close the show. Suskind meets with the company at 8 p.m. Monday night to express his gratitude to the company for their hard work, and he says, "I had to see you all again. You're all marvelous people. I'm heartbroken. I'll never forget any of you. I hope." Moose and Eddie come to their senses, but if not, we may have to call on you to testify. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so sad. That's where it broke my heart a little bit, you know, because we've all been in that meeting. So that is the oh, with certain people that we both worked for. (laughs) Well, if I mean, as an actor, we've probably sat in meetings where it's been revealed that someone was let go, or that someone was too injured to continue, or that. Like, um, a, a show is closing. Have you ever been or... asked to testify on the stand? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not not as of yet, no. Okay, so that is the tale of Kelly's journey from idea to closing on yeah. opening night. And and I have to say, if anyone is really interested in the story, go ahead and look up the the Evening Post article. It, it gives you the whole thing, and it's very long. It was hard to condense it into just 30 yeah. minutes. But um, one last thing, the final paragraph of the Post article 
the the reporter who wrote the whole thing it finds out that the sets are going to be burned at the dump at 10 okay. a.m. So he goes to the dump, I assume, to get photos of a Broadway set burning, uh-huh. like, for the article. Uh-huh. But when he gets there, he finds... This is a really, it's really a dark way to end the whole article. He says he found a, a man that was doing a lot of the work that morning. And he says, oh, no, we don't burn sets anymore. We buried it in the mud about an hour ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, at a dump in Secaucus. Never to be seen again. Yeah. All right. All right, what you got now? What you got now? Well, is it time to move on to critical reception? Yes, I'm so excited! My absolute favorite quote is the opening to that New York Times article. And it says, Ella Logan was written out of Kelly before it reached the Broadhurst Theater Saturday night. Congratulations, Miss Logan. (laughs) (laughs) And that's none other than the effervescent Howard Taubman of the Mm -hmm, Times. Correct. The ending of Taubman's article is kind of a good quote. He says, What Kelly offers is energy and perspiration by a well-meant, hard-working troupe. Herbert Ross's staging is as uninspired as his material. One can imagine what Kelly hoped to be, but the milieu and its people, resisting the effort and expense poured into them, refused to come to life. But we should mention what he actually ended the article with, referring to the court case going on. If you were the judge, wouldn't you pronounce a severe sentence? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there's another article that was posted, I believe, that Monday or the next day when it was announced that the show was closing after having only performed one performance. It's by Uh Sam Zolotow of the New York Times. Oh, I I didn't read this one. I can't wait to hear it. So this is my absolute favorite. He mentions... Here's a quote from a year ago from Mr. Suskind uh, when he agreed to do Kelly. And Suskind is quoted as saying, I've had my head handed to me three times on Broadway, and I take a dim view of its merciless hit-or-flop setup. In spite of my bruised psyche and against my strong reluctance, I auditioned the show and found it marvelous, lusty, an 1886 piece with memorable, hummable tunes and inventive lyrics. I flipped! All my Broadway bruises vanished. Wow. And then the article says, Mr. Suskind was not available for comment yesterday. Oh, <laughs> poor guy. I don't think anyone wanted this to happen. Well, after Boston, it seems that they did to some extent. It seems like some people did want it to explode. Yeah. Oh, what a shame. What a waste of time and oh, money. Oh, good lord. The, my fa- Okay, so here's one. Yeah. Norman Nadell, the World Telegram and Son, writes, There's some virtuoso tuba playing in the otherwise commonplace overture to Kelly. Mark it well, because nothing else that entertaining happens during the next 55 minutes. Oh. Uh, Norman Nadell ends his with, There is a good musical in the colorful story of the Brooklyn Bridge. Kelly certainly isn't it. Oh. Um, did you read the Walter Kerr review? No, go on. Oh, this is good. We're going to want to keep this in here. Walter Kerr, Herald Tribune, says, A structure which stands so tall and strong and sturdy simply has to be jumped off, the play posits. Any fool can see that. The catch is that we're not going to see it, and we know it. I mean, we're not going to see the actual full jump, at least not until they sell the movie rights. And any musical which spends its entire evening getting us breathlessly ready for an event which nobody is going to get a decent look at is a musical that's kidding. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's very, very It true. is true. You The whole thing, the poster is the man jumping off the bridge. You're going to do a two-hour musical and not even... What? It's going to be a blackout. He's going to stand on an edge. There's going to be a blackout. Apparently, he was on strings. Oh, that's even worse. Right? <laughs> In a discussion about whether the wires are obvious in Kelly's jump scene, Mel Brooks says, Leave it in. The hippies know he's on wires, but the Hadassah don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They should have put him in his Kelly. Show would have been a fucking hit. probably would have run for years. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. All right, what's next? Can the show work today? No. It didn't then, it cannot now. I am taking the opposite end again. Oh, Mark. <laughs> okay, this show no. can't work. Give, give me a minute. The show can't work as is, but a story about Steve Brody, not the exact story, <sighs> could work. And hold on, I'll add to that. I'll say a show today done in the style of Brecht also could work. Here are my examples. Chicago, Brecht-like. Cabaret, Brecht-like. Avida, Brecht-like. You are in town, sort of a parody okay. of Brecht. Yeah. Oh, boy. You disagree. So, I think a big question is, if the producers had just allowed the show that they'd written to open on Broadway, would it have been in any way better? Oh, yes. You would think? It have been because it wouldn't have been it so It would have been honest. Mixed. It would have been honest. There would not have been so much, so much mixed messaging. Yes. Um... And it still would have been bad, though. I think everyone oh, knew that. Absolutely. I'm not saying that this show is in itself good. I'm saying it could have been good. The premise could have been good. It just needed different writers and directors and producers. Okay, I see what you're saying. But the question of this segment of the episode is, <laughs> could it work today? The answer is no. no no the songs are so noisy the one article calls it like rattling and noisy by some of my favorite lyrics hey lady hands off the tomatoes and the potatoes hey what do you say here on hester street push carts lemon ices penny paradise biffs boffs and bams <laughs> yams clams and sams d's dems and dams Hey, what do you say here? I'm home again. It, the score is just, it's like if the Fantastics fucked little Abner and they gave birth to like an Irish guys and dolls. Woo, <laughs> 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 that was a hell of a ride. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We'll see you next time when we cover Chu Chem, the Hebrew Zen Buddhist musical. But till then, Here's a little piece of music for you. Bim, bop,